Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. China is about to shrink. That was the sobering message from its latest census, which suggests the fertility rate has slowed even faster than the more pessimistic forecasts had suggested. If it carries on like this, the population will start to shrink in 2025, five years earlier than previously thought, and even the mighty Chinese Communist Party seemed powerless to stop it. We're going to talk about that and the great baby battle underway in countries across Asia in a few minutes. Our reporter in Spain, Jeanette Newman, also has a story from Valencia on a radical experiment to help small businesses come through the next stage of the pandemic, which also features my favourite bicycle helmets. So we definitely have variety this week. But first, there are lots of things in our daily lives that are being transformed by new technology. But what about money? Is Bitcoin the future? Or perhaps one of the other cryptocurrencies that have been causing such a speculative frenzy in recent months? Or will we wake up in a few years and find we're still fond of old-fashioned dollars and cents and that talk of digital currencies was just a fad? Well, one person who's been thinking very hard about all of these issues is Professor Ishwar Prasad, now Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University and a Senior Fellow of Brookings, but previously a senior official at the International Monetary Fund and most recently author of a book about to come out called The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. Welcome, uh, Professor Prasad Ishwar, and thank you for writing this uh, extremely useful book, given how much has been happening, how much news we've had over the last few months about digital currencies and crypto and the like. We've got a lot to cover, but I guess we should just start with the basic assertion running through your book that this time really is different. You know, we are looking at a major disruption in how we use money and, and even what money is. That's right, Stephanie. First of all, thanks for having me on your show. And this is indeed a good time to take stock of what is happening in the worlds of money and finance. There has, of course, been a lot of interest in Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency revolution to set off. But I think the real legacy of Bitcoin is that it has come at a point in time when digital payments are becoming uh, preponderant around the world, including in developing economies. And there is a move towards digitization, um, which I think is going to leave its mark on both money and finance. Uh, very few of us use actual cash anymore, physical cash, that is. Uh, we tend to make payments with the swipe of a credit card or a phone, for that matter. And I think we're going to see Bitcoin leave its legacy, even if Bitcoin does not endure, in that form, that we're going to have digital forms of payment, either um, through central bank digital currencies, which some countries are initiating, or private digital payment systems intermediated in the form of these cryptocurrencies. And one thing you say in, in the book is that, in a sense, it's not Bitcoin that is the transformation in itself. It's the underlying technology. So just explain that uh, a little bit. So the technology is a marvel. And it's worth thinking about the origins of Bitcoin. So um, the Bitcoin white paper was released by a creator or creators. We don't know who that is to this day. Right around the time of the global financial crisis's onset. Uh, so that was a time when trust in central banks and governments and traditional financial institutions was at its uh, lowest ebb. And the notion of being able to undertake transactions 
in a somewhat anonymous way using only digital identities and without a central bank or a traditional commercial bank in being involved was very alluring. And that is the remarkable aspect of the technology. When you make a payment either using cash or using a credit or debit card, either a central bank or a commercial bank is involved. What Bitcoin uh, turned out to do was to provide a solution whereby you could have transactions being validated through what is called a public consensus mechanism. And Bitcoin, although it is uh, supposed to be anonymous, actually provides remarkable transparency. Every transaction is out there for the entire world to see on the Bitcoin blockchain. The distributed aspect is also very important. The Bitcoin blockchain, which is a record, a public ledger of all the transactions using Bitcoin, is maintained on multiple computers around the world. So hacking a particular computer or even a set of computers or having some computers go down is not going to affect the system. So in that sense, the technology is going to really set off a revolution in itself. So just to be clear, you could have the end of cash, but still not have this kind of structural change in how money works that you're talking about for Bitcoin and other things. What is really crucial here is what role the government and central banks are going to have. And Bitcoin provided the allure of getting away from all of that, essentially democratizing finance by making finance available to anybody uh, with no restrictions, with no uh, censorship, and without a trusted third party involved. That creates um, a lot of risks, even while it does have certain benefits. Well, it's funny, you say the allure of getting rid of the, the, the role of the central bank or this kind of central authority. Of course, there'll be there'll be a lot of people who would consider that to be deeply attractive, that you don't have government somehow involved in, in inherently at the centre of finance. And of course, many other people who would say, hang on a minute, isn't this a rather frightening world that you have no central figure, um, you don't have the kind of relationship of trust that you have with a central bank. So you talked about how some uh, central banks, I know Sweden is thinking about having the e-krona, uh, have, have talked about having central bank digital currencies. Uh, what's, what's the thinking behind that? And, and how would that be different from what we have now? Many central banks around the world are initiating their own digital currencies or central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, that is. Um, and CBDCs are being instituted in some economies because they provide easy access to households and businesses to a low-cost digital payment system. In countries such as Sweden, there is a concern that having the entire payment system in the hands of the private sector may be good for efficiency and bring down costs, but it could leave concerns about financial stability. At a time of financial panic, you could have the entire payment system shutting down if the government has no role in it. In a country like China, there is a concern that the major digital payment providers like Alipay and uh, WeChat Pay are dominating the payments market and making central bank money irrelevant. So I think central banks see um, CBDCs as a tool for promoting financial inclusion, providing a backstop to the private payment system, and creating a more level playing field for other payment innovators rather than just the major players who could also start providing efficient payment services. Mm -hmm. 
So what would if if you live in a country where the central bank is going down this route, what does that look like in practice? Would you would you would know when you were using a central bank digital currency? I mean, what, how would it be different? The technology now exists for each household in an economy or each business to have an account with the central bank and use central bank money through that account. Now, that could drive banks out of business, and you don't want to be in a position where the central bank is now allocating credit in the economy. So countries such as China and Sweden that are experimenting with CDDCs are going with a two-tier system where the digital wallets in which the central bank uh, uh, digital uh, dollars or yuan reside are actually maintained by the commercial banks side by side with their own interest-bearing deposit accounts. So the CBDCs, just like cash, would not be uh, interest-bearing instruments. But now, with the central bank digital currency being in the form of token, that can be used across different payment platforms. So basically, you could use your central bank money across a variety of payment platforms, again, um, with the swipe of a phone. Um, So it would be observationally equivalent to using any other payment system, except you would now be using central bank money. But this also creates one issue that we may need to consider at the societal level. Uh, Do we really want to live in a world where anytime I buy um, you a cup of coffee, Stephanie, either a payment, uh, private payment provider or the government is going to know about it? Um, That's going to be a slightly dystopian world we live in. Central banks are going to great lengths to make the case that they're going to have privacy protections in place. But in my view, ultimately, anything digital is going to be traceable. And every central bank wants to make sure its money is not used for illegal purposes. So there will be auditability and traceability. So whatever limited privacy we have at this stage might very soon vanish. Well, and of course, that's why any self-respecting criminal has always used cash, uh, because you don't have uh, you don't have that kind of traceability. I just want to come back to you. You talked about the, the democratization of finance or the, and the potential for this to do that. I mean, historically, of course, we have had uh, periods where financial innovation have has brought easier forms of financing to more and more people. We've had sort of waves of that running through societies at different times. And it, though it has made it possible for people, say, to buy their own homes who might not otherwise have been able to do it or have access to borrowing at all that they might not have had, it has tended to also leave a lot of those sort of newly financially enfranchised people with a lot of risk uh, and have it blow up in a crisis of some sort. I mean, if that's a risk here, how, how can we guard against that? That is a significant risk, Stephanie. You're right that... Um uh, the democratization of finance, while it is a uh, um, very positive sounding concept, does carry certain risks. And those risks arise for a couple of reasons in particular. Um, digital access is still quite unevenly distributed in many countries, and financial literacy is certainly not prevalent, um, especially uh, among the economically disadvantaged. And we see that phenomenon among even among people who ought to be better informed. Um, the recent saga with uh, GameStop, where there was a speculative frenzy that was fueled by the Robinhood trading platform, which in principle made it much easier for retail investors to be able to trade um, both the stock and derivatives of this GameStop uh, company, certainly led to a speculative frenzy. And the problem in that speculative frenzy, as in most others, is that retail investors who came late to the party are the ones who got burned. And of course, we know we don't have to go far back. We only go back to 2008 to find 
very sophisticated, often very senior members of the financial sector not understanding some of the risks they were taking. So this is something that um, we've seen again and again. Finally, Ishwa, uh, you've mentioned it a few times already in this interview and in the book, you keep coming back to trust as the basic glue of the financial system and something that has also traditionally supported any effective currency. Um, what's the future of, of, of trust in this world and in this in this new world that you paint? Um, are we going to uh, put the same kind of trust into these digital platforms that we used to put into central banks? Uh, or are we going to potentially end up with a government actually more involved in our lives, as you said, and, and more aware of what we're doing? The great promise of Bitcoin was that it would replace our trust in government institutions and traditional financial institutions by essentially creating a public consensus mechanism. I think what we have seen in the last few years is that ultimately the government is still going to have a crucial role. Um, cryptocurrencies and uh, um, even stable coins, which have um, their values linked to existing fiat currencies, all actually seem to do a lot better when they get the imprimatur of the government in some implicit form or the other. Um, Bitcoin actually did a lot better once um, the US Internal Revenue Service actually recognized it as a financial asset that could be taxed. Um, Bitcoin owners were not happy about the taxes, but certainly were very happy um, that this uh, implicit uh, government recognition actually helped the Bitcoin community uh, flower. And ultimately, you're going to need um, regulations for investor protection, but also uh, for these markets to uh, move forward in a stable way. Um, moreover, if you think about uh, the promise of decentralized finance and the ability to conduct transactions just electronically, still, where the uh, digital world meets the real world, you still need the government to enforce property and contractual rights. Now, the risk, of course, is that Bitcoin may have set up a set off a revolution, which ends up, um, as you suggested, Stephanie, with the government playing even more intrusive roles in our lives. If central bank digital currencies do take hold, uh, we could lose any last vestige of privacy to the government. And that would be uh, a, certainly a dystopian future um, and one that we should be very concerned about. It's not obvious that uh, private payment systems and providers will be displaced by the government, but certainly one can see this happening in a society and we should guard against that. Gosh, this is such a, I mean, it is such a complicated uh, and fast moving area and you have been such a, a, a calm and lucid guide to it. Thank you very much, uh, Ishwar Prasad. It's been my pleasure, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, that was all very interesting, but many businesses in the US and Europe haven't had the luxury of thinking about the future over the past year and a half. They've been mainly focused on surviving the week, and the threat of bankruptcy still hangs over hundreds of thousands of small businesses in Europe. Though some bold experiments underway in Spain and France might make all the difference. Our Spain economy reporter Jeanette Newman went to Valencia to eat paella and find out more. That's the sound of a chef turning some broth, rice, and saffron into a Spanish culinary treat, paella. I'm in La Pepica, 
a restaurant that has been serving paella in the city of Valencia for more than a century. The recipes are traditional, rice with vegetables, rabbit, and chicken. Pepe Balaguer is the third generation to run this family restaurant. When he was a boy in the 1950s, he remembers Ernest Hemingway coming to dine after bullfights. Hemingway would walk into the kitchen to taste the paella or mix himself a sangria. I've always had the memory of this person who talked to everyone and was really engaging. La Papica has thrived as a temple to tradition in Valencia. But some of those old ways are threatening the survival of small European companies as they emerge from the pandemic. I went to Valencia to learn more about one of those problematic old habits, companies' over-reliance on banks for financing. That compares to the much wider range of options open to businesses that are recovering from the pandemic in the U.S. Bank financing is so much more common, especially in continental Europe, um, than, than capital markets, equity markets financing. So that's a huge difference. That's Katia Langenbucher. She's a law professor at Frankfurt University. There's no reason to say bank financing is bad in any way. It's just, as always, the combination of the two um, is where we would like to go. Selling stock, issuing debt to investors and other financing options, known broadly as capital markets, these tools aren't as widespread on the continent as they are in the U.S. That's a problem as Europe's small firms emerge from the pandemic and need to invest and restructure their debts. European Union leaders have talked for years about the need for deeper capital markets, particularly in the South and in smaller countries. They've also talked for years about the need to join up those disparate markets into a capital markets union. But they've never got very far. Why? One hurdle is that small businesses themselves are sometimes reluctant to let go of tradition. They don't like the idea of outside investors. They feel, oh, we're letting an outsider in and don't really want that. And it's better, you know, I know my banker. I've been, you know, doing business with them forever. Another hurdle is the supply of funds. One issue is that banks in Europe have a lot of power to turn on and off the financing tap. I spoke to Alfonso Erhardt from investment firm Okendo Capital in Madrid. The banks in the U.S., everything is really specialized. Here are banks, they do credit cards, they do uh, capital uh, leases, they do uh, working capital financing, they will finance your exports, uh, they will uh, manage your payments. To ensure those powerful banks didn't cut off funding during this crisis, European governments launched loan guarantee programs. The power and reach of banks has been an asset, channeling cheap loans backed by the state to companies in need. The programs ensured that many companies got the funds they needed to cover basic expenses. But in the end, it's still debt. People are starting to worry that some bankruptcies have just been delayed. What if banks aren't willing to restructure some loans or don't lend to some firms that need to invest to bounce back? Banks, after all, have their own balance sheets to focus on. I spoke to Carlos Ferrando in Valencia to learn what the lack of financing options means for companies emerging from the pandemic. He runs Kloska, a startup that makes water bottles and patented a collapsible helmet. You can uh, reduce the, the volume of the helmet by more than 50% in less than one second. No, it's collapsed. No, it's a bike helmet. When Carlos started his company several years ago, he got a taste for how hard it can be to get financing. He says it's tough for banks to understand a startup business model. The risk team from the banks is the same if they speak with a startup than with a restaurant. This is my, this is the reality that is happening here in Spain today. 
such hurdles end up stopping many startups from growing. You cannot go to other countries. You cannot increase your 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 sales team or your marketing or your digital marketing. No, uh, uh, and then you start to to get smaller, and this is a black hole. Carlos was lucky and eventually got funding from Spanish venture capital firms and a bank. He sells his helmets at the Museum of Modern Art's design store. He sold Closca bottles to major companies, including Google. Then the pandemic hit and funding dried up. Closca tried to pivot and sell face masks. It didn't go well. He tapped some state-backed loans. It wasn't enough. So imagine with such a good project, with such a good product, we were afraid to lose the company. Valencia's regional financing agency came to the rescue. It gave Closca a type of equity loan that isn't considered debt and bolsters the firm's balance sheet. That's encouraged banks to keep lending. Carlos says he considered leaving Valencia until the agency helped him restructure his balance sheet. And now because the support of the Valencian government, I would love to, to, to pay 100% of the taxes here in the future. The man behind these clever solutions for thousands of small companies like Closca and La Pepica is Manuel Iueca. He's the head of Valencia's finance agency. Before Manuel joined the agency, he was a finance professor. Now, he's putting years of academic expertise to work to ensure that viable firms survive the pandemic. I mean, we need to do it. Otherwise, I mean, the, this, this company is going to be bankrupt. Manuel's agency has also contributed millions of euros to a restructuring fund that will be run by Okendo, the investment firm. We heard Alfonso talk about banks earlier. They're all putting money on the, on the big companies, on the best performing companies. So good businesses which are struggling, uh, nobody, nobody looks after them. And, 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 and Manuel has been quick to spot that there are people like us uh, that invest in, in those type of instruments yeah. and those type of situations. There's an important shift happening in France, too, on a greater scale. France is in the process of rolling out a 20 billion euro fund to provide financing to small and medium-sized companies. Banks will issue equity loans to around 12,000 French companies. The banks will keep some of those loans on their balance sheet and spin off the rest into a fund. That fund is partially guaranteed by the French state. That makes it less risky for investors. Alberto Navalpotro founded Imbonis, a credit rating firm for smaller businesses. His company will analyze the default risk of some of those French companies. This program alone represents twice the, the size of the private debt market in France. And, and, and 12,000 companies is four times more than the companies that have today in France access to some sort of private debt, private equity. The fund is expected to draw new types of investors, such as insurance companies and investment firms based outside France. In the past, they haven't been able to easily bet on the prospects of so many small French companies. These are players that didn't used to play in this market, so they're bringing insurance companies directly into this market, and this is new. In the short term, this fund should help provide financing to companies so that they recover from the pandemic and invest. The longer term play is to shape a capital market for these companies. Many hurdles remain to develop a deep capital market in Europe. The pandemic, though, has triggered a shift in places like Valencia and France. New tools are important, so that European startups like Kloska can get off the ground. And so traditional firms like La Pepica can last another 100 years. Jeanette Newman, Bloomberg News.
And those collapsible bicycle helmets really are very good. My sister gave me one for my birthday. Best present ever. Now, it's often said that demography is destiny. How quickly your population is growing and how old it is can have an enormous impact on what kind of country you live in and how fast you grow. The US and much of Europe has been grappling with the consequences of people living longer for some time. But probably no country has seen such a dramatic shift in its demographic fortunes in the last few years as China. The latest Chinese census brought this out very clearly, and I thought it was a good opportunity to get more from our chief Asia economist Chang Shu in Hong Kong and Bloomberg senior Asia economy reporter Michelle Jamrisco in Singapore. So Chang, Michelle, thanks for staying up uh, uh, to talk to me. Um, there's long been discussion about China's one-child policy and how that had had uh, put it on course for a pretty challenging time uh, demographically. We've had this, this latest census. Chang, were there any surprises there? Indeed, the um, uh, demographic issues in China have been discussed for some time, but the latest census still brought some surprises. It really shows how acute the demographic challenges have become. The latest census put the uh, Chinese population at 1.4 billion slightly up from a decade ago, but the growth rate was very slow, 0.5% um, on average each year in the past decades down from the previous decades. And the biggest surprise in a way is the fertility rate. It was estimated at 1.3 in 2020. That would place China close to the low fertility case in the United Nations projections. In such scenario, China's population will start to, to decline around 2025 that's much uh, earlier than the government anticipated in uh, 2017 and again 2019 reports, government reports. Uh, the um, population peak was put at around 2030. So the situation is really much more serious than previously anticipated. That's amazing. So that's it's basically it's taken five years off the forecast for when the population was gonna was gonna peak from from twenty thirty to twenty five. I mean that's extraordinary. Looking at this as an economist, what does that mean for China's growth rate? Because obviously we know that China's gonna be going from this very dramatic fast growth period uh, for several decades. We know that it's gonna slow, but does it mean it's gonna slow that much more dramatically? Yes, that does mean the um, demographic trends uh, will turn into a negative um, contribution to China's growth. The working population has already started to decline. The share of the working age population fell to 63% in 2020 from 70% a decade ago. If we look at international comparison, China's employment growth was already slower than what other major economies experienced at similar income levels. This suggests the uh, slowdown in labor growth is an increasing challenge for China to break through the middle income um, trap. And, um, and uh, if, if not dealt with, that really would stop China rise into a developed economy status. Now, we know that the government's pretty concerned about this and it has changed its one-child policy. In fact, I saw that it'd gone from not only being able to have two, but maybe have three children. Is that going to come fast enough 
to reduce the challenges you've just been talking about? Yeah, I mean, that might not come fast enough. And certainly the three-child policy itself is not sufficient to turn the tide. The uh, relaxation you talked about in 2016 to allow two children only resulted in a very short-term boost to childbirth. And births jumped just for two years in 2016-17, but then quickly dropped again. So the latest relaxation uh, to three children may not really move the needle much or for any sustained period. The, um, the officials at the National Statist Bureau of Statistics said the average number of desired children is about 1.8, certainly below two. So China will have to do more, much more, all sorts of fronts, employment, tax and housing policies to reduce financial and time burden for raising children, increasing mobility and raising the retirement age. It's really critical for the country's long-term growth outlook. I mean, it is interesting because it's the same challenge that lots of countries, certainly across Europe, you have Italy has got a shrinking uh, population now and has made great efforts to try and effectively bribe families to have more children, has not had so much success. In France, they seem to have been a bit more successful at maintaining the fertility rate. And I don't, they often say that's because of the fine wine and fine food. Um, but Michelle Jambriska, let me, let me bring you in here. I'm interested in whether there are other countries uh, around the region that are concerned about low uh, fertility rates and, and whether actually COVID has done anything uh, to change the conversation. Yes, certainly, Stephanie. I mean, I think several have endured this struggle for many years, even before COVID and, and outside of China. So South Korea, Thailand, Singapore, Taiwan, and of course, Japan all, all really stand out. Uh, South Korea appears to be clinging to the world's lowest fertility rate, and, and several of the others are in that territory as well. And J Japan's population could plunge another 15% by 2050, according to UN estimates. So COVID, as it has on many other issues, has made a bad situation so much worse. We saw a lot more record lows in fertility rates last year. And there is hope that some of the demographic damage of the past year will be temporary, but the question still remains on how to tackle this long-term trend that was cemented even before the pandemic. Pandemic. I think governments are finding that it's quite difficult to, to work against cultural and behavioral norms. And they've often joked about how difficult it is just to convince people to have more babies. Um, Singapore Prime Minister Lee Sien Lung mentioned this in an interview with our own editor-in-chief a couple years ago. Uh, our Taipei bureau chief uh, recalls all the press briefings with the former central bank governor there who would exhort his young reporters in, in briefings to, to go home and get married and have children. But none of this does, seems to work. It is interesting because we've had, you know, most of the time when we talk about Asia or when we think indeed about the 21st century and what it's going to look like, we've tended to think it will be the Asian century, that the march of Asia is unstoppable. But if Asian economies continue to face this demographic challenge, if, if populations continue to shrink, I mean, does that really put some of that at risk? Does it really stop Asia's development at some level? Well, I think that's the big question, but that's what we're starting to see uh, cracks in a lot of these measurements and, and not just the top line growth figures, though those are, are certainly focused on in a lot of these discussions. But there's a lot of long term repercussions of these aging societies and low fertility rates. Um, one other measure that we look at a lot is the dependency ratio, the, the lack of younger residents available to care for the elderly, which 
certainly is a strain on government pension and healthcare systems, but also, of course, a cultural and a, a personal strain. Um, labor markets are getting a rude awakening. Fewer working age residents and automation not moving fast enough to fill the void. Uh, some institutions like universities that banked on certain enrollment numbers will now see strains when those applicants don't materialize. And there's an interesting one in South Korea. The, the shrinking population there is a concern, especially for the military, which is still an armed standoff with its northern neighbor. Uh, military officials are turning to robots for help, reasoning that, you know, losses of robot soldiers are less tragic anyway. But, you know, any of these solutions, um, you know, as we said, it's, it's very difficult. And, and these institutions and, and aspects of society are certainly under strain. And, and, but lest we think it's all downhill for Asia's population, and of course we should always also be reminded that you can't, you shouldn't generalise about such an incredibly varied continent. Um, I think you found a couple of economies uh, in Asia that are actually have got too many babies. Well, that's right, and there's two notable exceptions uh, in this category, and and then they're very different from each other, I would say too. But that's Indonesia and the Philippines. Um, Indonesia has been a bit more vocal re- recently about needing to resolve this. We we had a story just a few months ago about the government doubling down in efforts to push later marriages, family planning, enhanced birth control. Uh, officials there are arguing that such a rapid pace of population growth threatens uh, the living standard. In the Philippines, uh, there are some other real cultural debates on how to address the situation. Religion also comes into play there, where the majority Catholic country hasn't been quick to embrace the thought of having fewer children per family and and birth control isn't very well available or supported. So especially among lower income uh, individuals, lack of access to birth control, health care and education has resulted in more unwanted or unexpected pregnancies, which uh, also have spiked during the pandemic. So there's been less traction in the Philippines on how to get to a more desirable pace of population growth. But both countries are, are in that different camp uh, as, as opposed to the majority of, of these other countries we discuss. And as you said, COVID sort of throwing a lot of these issues up into the air uh, in an interesting way uh, in many places. Well, Michelle Jambrisco, Chang Shu, thank you very much. So that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please rate the show and follow at Economics on Twitter for more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Professor Ishwar Prasad, Jeanette Newman, Chang Shu and Michelle Jamrisco. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. 